G'day everyone. Please uh, turn back to the Two Kings reading. That's where we're uh, looking at today. But as we start, I, um, as you know, I love helping people see uh, that the Bible is history. It's uh, not just stories, it's real events about real places and that sort of thing. And you might remember uh, last week, as Mike was preaching actually, about uh, Elisha's spring and uh, how uh, Elisha made the, the awful poisonous water pure and meant people could live in Jericho and that sort of thing. I actually got a photo of Elisha's spring. I managed to go there in Jericho a couple of uh, years ago. Uh, it's a real place. Uh, there is a real fresh water supply, which is the reason Jericho can exist. And in fact, uh, it was about 42 degrees that day and uh, a little bit downstream of uh, Elisha's spring, uh, we end up getting into the water with some local Palestinians and cooling off. I didn't have a photo of that because I didn't want my phone getting wet, but that's uh, a little bit downstream and uh, some Palestinians were already in the water because it was so hot. Uh, but it's just to show you that it's, uh, these are real places. These are real events. These are not just written as, as myths and stories. And with today's par- uh, passage, if you go to Paris and you go to the Louvre, uh, you can go and see something called the Mesha Steel or the Moabite Stone. That's a picture of it. Uh, and it's actually an inscription from the Moabite king we read about in this story with his side of the story, with him talking about his battles with Israel, and it actually supports the Bible's history. And I just share that as we start, because it's amazing how many people I talk to and they they, they think it's just sort of, oh, as if you can trust the Bible, as if it's real, you know, it's, it's, it's just stories. No, actually, uh, it's history. It's not just great stories. And I just start reminding you that. But now, let's pray and let's get into 2 Kings chapter 3. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that you have worked through history to fulfill your promises. And we thank you that you raised up the people of Israel and then from Israel brought our Saviour, the Lord Jesus. So we pray that as we look at this chapter from the Old Testament, we will see how you were at work to fulfill your promises to your people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you ever get those uh, backhanded compliments from people where you think it's a compliment when they first uh, share it with you, uh, but then you realise they're actually just trying to drag someone else down. They're, uh, they're not actually giving you a compliment at all. I mean the ones where they uh, compare you to someone else. So I'll give you an example. Many years ago, I was taking a funeral uh, for a person who uh, was not a part of our church, not a member of our church, and an elderly lady came up to me after the service, uh, and she said, there were no pleasantries or anything like that, she just said to me, I only come to your church for funerals. I thought, oh, well, this is going well. But um, uh, So I thought, I'll try to engage with her, and so I asked, well, how did you find the service today? And she said to me, well, you weren't as bad as the last guy. <laughs> what do you do with that? I mean... Uh, how bad was the last guy? I don't know. Uh, in, in, in one sense, it was a compliment. I did better than someone else in her eyes. Uh, actually, it's a put down, isn't it? She was made it very clear. She had very little time for me or the last guy. That was her point she was trying to make. They call it damning someone with faint praise. Uh, well, today in Two Kings, we meet the new king of Israel, King Joram. He also gets called Jehoram, just to confuse us, but we'll just call him Joram. So Joram's brother Ahaziah had died with no children. Uh, and so Joram, the next son of Ahab and Jezebel, becomes the king of Israel. And that's how we're introduced to Joram. Basically, it says, meet King Joram. He's hopeless, but not as bad as his mum and dad. That's how you meet him. So Joram, I've called it Joram, not as bad as the last guy. Look at me at verse 1. 
It says, Joram, son of Ahab, became king over Israel and Samaria during the 18th year of Judah's king Jehoshaphat and reigned 12 years. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight, but not like his father and mother, for he removed the sacred pillar of Baal his father had made. Nevertheless, Joram clung to the sins that Jeroboam, son of Nebat, had caused Israel to commit. He did not turn away from them. Now, as you read that, you, you could think, oh, well, this is a good thing. Israel is, is moving in a positive direction. Ahab and Jezebel totally despised God. So, you know, they, they were the lowest of the low. They actually replaced God with pagan idols. They, they introduced the worship of Baal instead of the worship of Yahweh. Joram is not as bad as that. He's more like Jeroboam, what we call a syncretist. He wanted to have his cake and eat it too. He wanted there to be worship of Yahweh, but also worship of the Baals. And he didn't persecute people for following the one true God like his parents did. But he was happy to worship other gods. He was happy to let anyone worship whoever they wanted, really. He would have been a very modern leader, really, isn't he? It's a very modern way of looking at the world, very tolerant. So as you read it, we could think, well, things are getting better under Joram. Uh, But one of the things this chapter does is remind us there are not degrees of faithfulness. There are not degrees of faithfulness to God. You are either with God and you hate other gods or you are not with God. Joram should have known the Ten Commandments and especially you should have known the first two commandments. Look on the screen, Exodus chapter 20, it says, do not have other gods besides me. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. You must not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Joram should have known those commandments. God does not accept some of our worship. Yes, there are degrees of evil. Joram was not as bad as Ahab. He was not as evil as Ahab. But in the end, idolatry is idolatry. Sin is sin. Joram deserves God's judgment just like his father before him and we're going to see that through this story. But as we start, I want us to see this danger because I think we, modern Christians, we can fall into this trap in the way we view people. Uh, We think of some people as sinners, you know, the people with obvious moral failings, the people with awful moral issues in their life, but other people seem more respectable, seem more middle class, not quite as sinful. But actually the Bible says all of us are sinners. All of us deserves God's judgment and all of us need God's forgiveness through Jesus. God's judgment will be just as awful for Joram as it was for Ahab and Jezebel. And God's judgment will be just as awful for the nice, respectable person who does not trust in Jesus as it will be for the obvious evil person who does not trust in Jesus. On the last day, you'll either be someone who worships God alone, that is, someone who trusts Jesus, or you'll be someone who didn't. But let's move on in the story. I've called the main part of the story three bumbling kings. This is verses 4 to 14. Uh, So a rebellion had sprung up that, that came to a head with the death of Ahab. The Moabites had been under the power of the Israelites So they'd been paying tribute to the Israelites for many years, but with the death of the powerful king, they took the opportunity to stop paying their tribute. So Joram decides, I'll get my armies together, I'll do something about this. He gets all the fighting men in Israel together, then he thinks, I need some allies. So he calls on Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, to join with him. And he thinks, well, if Judah joins, they'll bring all the people who are aligned with them. So the king of Edom will join in. It's a bit like in the world wars. Remember when you studied history? If When Germany invaded France, that meant England had to join in. That meant Turkey and Italy had to join in. That's the way it worked, even in the ancient world. 
And so King Jehoshaphat brings Judah's armies in for the fight. Now, Jehoshaphat is really interesting. Besides having, I think, maybe the best name in the Bible, uh, I remember a, a book my mum read me as a kid with the story of Great Jumping Jehoshaphat. Did anyone else have that picture book? Great Jumping Jehoshaphat. And I've said that ever since, whenever I read his name. Sam might have been named Jehoshaphat, except Victoria overruled me. But um, <laughs> it's not actually true. But uh, besides his great name, he is the king of Judah. And that makes him more important than the king of Israel. Remember, the king of Judah is properly descended from David. The king of Judah is in the line of the promise. The Bible also, more than that, says he's actually one of the good guys. There are not many kings in one and two kings the Bible is positive about. But Jehoshaphat is. He loved the Lord. He tried to reform Judah. He tried to bring people back to worshipping Yahweh. He wasn't perfect, but he's one of the few kings who does pretty well. And if you want to read about him more, go to 2 Chronicles and read about Jehoshaphat and you see all the great things that he did. But this is the second time Jehoshaphat has agreed to help Israel. He did the same when Ahab came and asked him for help in 1 Kings. So this time Joram sends a message to him. Look at verse 7. Jehoshaphat said, I will go. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. That's really hard to know if he was doing the right thing at this point. I think he is. I think he thinks, well, hang on, we are meant to be one people. So remember our map of Israel. Remember that one nation of Israel has split into two, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. They're meant to be one nation under God. Uh, So he thinks, I should help my brothers against these people who hate our God, who've always opposed our God. The Moabites have always been enemies of God and his people. We also get the sense that Jehoshaphat was a bit naive. Uh, he'd already done this with Ahab and it wasn't the best move, but, but here he goes again. Uh, maybe he assumes Joram and Israel were following God more than they were. Uh, so I sometimes think of him as like a good-hearted but naive man. I think that's the picture of Jehoshaphat, good-hearted but naive. Like the, like the Christian who assumes the best in people but doesn't realise the deceptiveness of sin. Uh, anyway, they set off together with their armies. They pick up the king of Edom and his armies on the way. Uh, but they go on this circuitous route through the desert. Uh, it's like they go from Carlton to Engadine via Bowral, if you want a sort of picture of it, uh, except it also takes them through a desert. Here it is on the map. So instead of attacking from the north, straight in from Israel, they go down to Judah, down, pick up Edom and come up from the bottom. Now, there might have been a good reason for that. There might have been guard posts in the north. We don't know. Uh, But either way, look at what happened. Verse 9, it says, So the king of Israel, the king of Judah, and the king of Edom set out. After they had travelled their indirect route for seven days, they had no water for the army or their animals. They're like me on a bushwalk. I I always intend that bushwalks will be very, very short. That's the way I like them. And Victoria says, why don't we take a bottle of water? Take a bottle of water, I've got a bottle of water. And then I say, I don't need a bottle of water, we'll be back in an hour, you know. And then I'm parched about, that's, that's them. So here they are heading into a war, but they're about to die of thirst. And so Joram turns around and what does he do? He blames God. Look at verse 10. Then the king of Israel said, oh no, the Lord has summoned three kings only to hand them over to Moab. At this point, I think you're meant to say, hang on, when did you ever ask God's advice on this? Nowhere in the story does Joram ever mention asking God's advice. This was your idea. But Joram is very, very human, I think. It's amazing how common this is 
People ignore God and then blame God when things go wrong. Yes, God is sovereign. God is all-knowing. God is all-powerful. But God's sovereignty, as we call it, never overrides our responsibility for our decisions. See, the truth of God's sovereignty is meant to be a wonderful comfort to people who love the Lord. That's what it's there for. God is in control. God is working for the good of those who love him, Romans tells us. Amen. But it's actually a horrible sin to take that wonderful truth as an excuse for then not taking responsibility for our own sin and our own foolishness. I hope you know what I'm talking about here. Sometimes people come to me because difficult things have happened through no fault of their own. Sometimes that happens in this fallen, broken world. People are struggling because just the world is fallen and broken and they ask, why is God letting this happen? And for that person, that is a legitimate question, as long as it leads them back to trusting God and and his goodness. But sometimes people act in a sinful way or in a foolish way. They make bad decisions and then there are consequences and then they cry out as if it's God's fault. They dare to accuse God and say, well, God, why are you letting this happen to me? That is just a horrible abuse of a wonderful truth. And that is Joram in this story, blaming the God he has ignored up until now. But at this point, Jehoshaphat pipes up. He might be a bit slow. He might be a bit naive, but his heart's in the right place. When in doubt, ask God. So look at verse 11. It says, but Jehoshaphat said, isn't there a prophet of the Lord here? Let's inquire of Yahweh through him. And there is a prophet, Elisha is hanging around because remember Elijah is gone we saw that last week Elisha is now the prophet Uh, and Jehoshaphat has heard really good things about Elisha so they go and see him when they get there though they don't even get a question out I love this Elisha just goes straight on the attack look at verse 13 however Elisha said to King Joram of Israel we have nothing in common go to the prophets of your father and your mother it's like he's saying now that you're in trouble you want to know what Yahweh has to say. Go back to your mum and dad's prophets. See how they help you. And this is where we see that point that we started with. You either serve God and no one else, or you don't serve God. God and his prophet Elisha have no time for half-hearted people. God and his prophet Elisha have no time for people who want to bob each way, if you like. If I can be very frank, it's like people who call themselves Christians but who pay no attention to God and his word and his people until they need something from God. Be very careful of that sort of half-hearted nominalism if it sneaks into your life. But then Elisha surprises us and he says, I will help you, but only because Jehoshaphat is a part of this. So look at verse 14. Elisha responded, as the Lord of hosts live, I stand before him. If I did not have respect for King Jehoshaphat of Judah, I would not look at you. I wouldn't take notice of you. Some people uh, struggle with Elisha. He just seems quite harsh and judgmental at points. A few people, we were talking morning tea last week, a few people were were talking about how harsh Elisha seems. He's certainly not nice in the modern sense. You wouldn't say he was a nice fellow. I think though, if we struggle with Elisha, we're actually struggling with God. If we struggle with Elisha, we're struggling with God because God has no time for fair-weather disciples. That's what Elisha's talking about. God has no time for people who seek him when it suits them, but who aren't interested in living as his followers. As Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, take up your cross and follow me. He didn't say, if you want to be my disciple, come to me when you feel like it. 
Let those with ears to hear, hear Elisha's challenge to Joram. Well, that brings us to our next part, which I've called God's abundant blessings. And this is verses 15 to 25. Despite his dislike for Joram, Elisha prophesies for them. You see this from verse 15. I don't know why Elisha needed a musician to play. Maybe it was to calm him down. Maybe he was so angry that he's got to help Joram. He just says, I need something to to help me. But he tells them, dig some ditches and God will fill them with water for you. You're not going to die of thirst. God will provide for you. But then there is just this wonderful moment in verse 18. Look with me. It says, this is easy in the Lord's sight. He will also hand Moab over to you. Hope you see what he's saying there. I think you, you often miss it just as we read through the passage. He's saying, just giving you water from the desert is too trivial a matter for me. That's too easy for the God of the universe. That's too simple. I'm going to do something much more powerful than that. I'm going to give you victory over the Moabites. You ask for me to keep you alive so you're a chance in the fight. I'm going to keep you alive and give you the victory. And I think that is just a wonderful glimpse into the character of God, a glimpse into the generosity of God towards his people. For us as Christians, it would be wonderful enough, it would be wonderful enough to just have God forgive us our sins. That is more than we deserve, isn't it? It'd be wonderful enough for God just to say, I forgive you and now go sit in the corner and be quiet. I don't want anything else to do with you. That is not enough for God. God gives you every spiritual blessing in Christ. God adopts you into his family. God gives us his spirit. God guarantees us a place in his eternal kingdom. It's like the start of John's gospel and it says, it'll come up on the screen. It says, indeed, we have all received grace after grace from his fullness. Or I like it, grace on top of grace. This is the abundant generosity of God. And that is what he does here for Joram and Jehoshaphat. He doesn't just bring water from the desert to keep them alive. He then uses that water to trick the superstitious Moabites into a foolish attack and Israel destroys their enemy. That is the God we know in Jesus. That is the God who gives us far more than we ever even think to ask him for. But there is a problem here. What's the problem? The problem is actually, why is God so gracious to Joram? We don't think of that because we just think, oh, God should be nice to everyone. We, we, we always downplay our sin. But actually, the problem is, why is God so good to Joram? It's not like he deserves it. Remember the, the spray that, that Elisha gave him. So why is God so gracious to him? Well, remember, it all goes back to verse 14, which I think is the key verse in the chapter. Look there again. He says, if I did not have respect for King Jehoshaphat of Judah, I would not look at you. See, the one smart thing that Joram did is invite the son of David along for the ride. The one smart thing he did is invite the current Messiah, the current Christ, at that time that was Jehoshaphat, along for the ride. God does not bless Joram because he deserves it. Joram gets blessed because he is with the one God loves. And this is actually pointing us forward to the gospel. It's actually the same for us. We have every spiritual blessing, not because we deserve it. No, we were like Joram. We were half-hearted creatures who'd rebelled against God. Now, all we deserve is exactly the same spray that Elisha gave Joram. We have every spiritual blessing only because of who we are with. 
That's what the New Testament says. It's only if we are with Jehoshaphat's greatest descendant, the true son of David, the true Messiah, our Lord Jesus. God doesn't look kindly on us because we deserve it, but because we cling to Jesus. You know how we sing that song, Rock of Ages? And so it's only to him I cling or something like that. You know the line? Look at how he puts it in Ephesians chapter 1. He says, Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavens. He has blessed us in Christ. They're the two most important words. It's only in Christ, if we are in Christ, that we receive the blessings of God. We don't even deserve God's crumbs. But if we trust in Jesus... God looks at him, not at us, and we receive God's abundant blessings. We almost wish the story ended there with Israel's great victory, but there's one somewhat final disturbing scene, and I've called it, Would You Follow Another God? This is the final two verses, 26 and 27. Israel has won, God has given them the victory, only this tiny remnant of Moabites is left in one town, And the king of Moab has one final push against the king of Edom, I think because he thinks he'll be the weakest, but even that fails. So in desperation, he does what he thinks his pagan god, Chemosh, wants. Look at verse 27. So he took his firstborn son, who was to become king in his place, and offered him as a burnt offering on the city wall. Do not fall into the trap of having a romantic view of the world without the impact of God's law and the gospel. It's one of the great lies of modern propaganda. Uh, Modern propaganda loves to pretend that the pagan world was lovely and the pagan world was free. And in the pagan world, everyone did whatever they liked and it was just this wonderful life and then Christianity came along and ruined it. This is what pagan religions did. This is what pagan religions did. This is what human beings come up with when they have turned away from the one true God. We are meant to be horrified by the Moabites. But then something strange happens, strange to our ears anyway. It works. Look at the rest of the verse. It says, Great wrath was on the Israelites, and they withdrew from him and returned to their land. Now, what happened there? Unfortunately, this is one of those verses that's quite unclear. Uh, and, And people will argue about what happened. It doesn't say whose wrath it was. Was it God's wrath? that fell on the Israelites, I mean, they deserved it, but why would God respond to something as awful like that, as that? You know, that doesn't seem to make sense. It can't be Chemoth's wrath, he's just an idol made of wooden stone. So it's not like it worked in the terms of the pagan God. Is it the Moabites' wrath? You know, did this sacrifice so inspire them that they got fired up and went and won the battle? Uh, Did the Israelites' legs turn to jelly? You know, does this show their divided hearts again, that they still feared pagan gods. This is one of those verses where we just can't be certain. I wonder though if it's actually the Israelites' wrath in the sense of horror or indignation. Uh, I wonder if they were so disturbed by what they saw that they just packed it up and went home and, and left this last fight. Either way, I think that's what this passage was meant to teach the people of Israel. I think this is why this is recorded in the Bible. It's meant to say to them, Do you realise how wonderful your God is? Do you realise how wonderful Yahweh is compared to that? Do you realise how wonderful the God of the universe is compared to that pagan, awful religion? 
Why would you want to be a part of that? That's what it's saying. Why would you you be dabbling with pagan religion that even sacrifices its children to their gods? Why would you want to be a part of that when you know the one true God? And when you know the one true God who showers his blessings on his people? I must admit, I think that about our modern world. Sometimes I think Christians can look at the world and we think we're missing out. Maybe it'd be better to just be in the world. But I look at our world as it moves further and further away from God and moves further and further away from God's ways. And I think, why would I want that? I look and all I see is moral confusion. I see good called evil and evil called good. I, I see an epidemic of hopelessness. I see people sacrificing themselves and their children on the God of selfishness. I see people trying to find meaning in hobbies and money and sex and drinking and whatever else, but not finding it because those things cannot give them meaning. I look at our world and I'm not so much indignant at it as I'm just despairing for it. Do you agree? Why would you want that when you can know the God who showers his abundant blessings on you in Christ? Why would you want anything this world has to offer when you can know the God who gives you meaning and gives you every spiritual blessing in Christ? That's what I think. And that's what I think we need to walk away with from this final scene. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your abundant faithfulness. And we thank you that because we are with your true Christ, your true Messiah, because we trust in Jesus, we receive every spiritual blessing in him. So, Father, help us not to look jealously at the world. Instead, help us to see its hopelessness. And we pray that we would never be tempted to turn aside from the one true God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.